Well, good morning. Thank you for being with us. We are going to be in uh, the epistle of Jude, right before Revelation, and uh, going to be reading from uh, verses 17 through 23. This is, uh, someone commented to me this week that uh, they don't think they've ever heard a sermon from the book of Jude. Well, you're going to hear a sermon on some portion of Jude today, <laughs> but in, in typical Beheimer fashion, I will not make it through much of it. Just a few verses. We're going to be reading in uh, Jude verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray. Lord God, we approach you this morning as a church, as a congregation coming before you, worshiping you. Acknowledging that you alone are God. Acknowledging that you are our creator. Perfectly holy. Majestic. Absolutely powerful. And good. And loving. And patient toward us. We worship you this morning. And we praise you that we have this opportunity to join together as a congregation of the redeemed, those who have peace with you through Jesus. We get to have your word in front of us. We praise you for that. We have your spirit who lives within us. We praise you for that. And we have this opportunity to open your word to discuss it together. And we pray that even in this, uh, this period of time, these next few minutes, we pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit from your Word, that you would convict us of sin, that you would comfort us where we need that, that you would teach us, that you would strengthen us, that you would prepare us for this life that we have in this context in which we find ourselves. We need you. And so we ask that you would be at work even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This month of January, we have spent looking at the church and we've talked about how the church is put together. We've talked about different roles that are played within the church and the structure and the design and, and how God did that and did so on purpose and, and uh, have talked about the church 
not just because, hey, it's the beginning of the year and we should talk about the church, but really because of the times in which we live. So the message today is entitled, The Church for Our Times, that we are in quite a world right now with the circumstances that are going on around us, with fears and lack of certainty and concerns about what might happen in the future or what is happening at the moment. And the fact is that the nature of the times in which we live, the demands that are placed upon us and will be placed upon us as Christians, call for us to have a sound doctrine of the church, a sound understanding of the role the church is to play in our own lives. Our world is becoming increasingly secular. It's become increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity and to all that biblical Christianity stands for. The opposition is not just to uh, what the Bible teaches about God or about the supernatural, but even the definition of male and female, even on the definition of life itself and its value. Male and female concepts have become fluid that a person now gets to choose and even surgically alter their their gender, as it's called. Someone else often gets to pay for it. And the Equality Act being discussed means that a biological male, what, what we and what the Bible would call a man, can go into your daughter's uh, dressing room, changing room, shower, locker, change into a uniform right next to your daughter, and go and compete in her sport, identifying as a woman. And uh, you know what will happen there. And you'll be the bad guy if you even complain about it. That's what the Equality Act is working towards. And with the stroke of a pen, our new president has made U.S. foreign aid available to promote and to perform abortions in countries around the world. It's not enough that in my lifetime, since 1973, we've slaughtered more than 60 million unborn babies. We export that around the world. And not only do we export it, but we pay for it to happen around the world. Those are just some of the evils that are happening in our country. And we could go on and on. We could talk about how all of life is being redefined. All of our values are being redefined. And that's bad enough. But here's what's worse. It's not just happening out there. It's not just happening beyond the confines of Christianity in our culture. There are churches that claim the name of Christ that are in agreement with these things. There are teachers and so-called pastors in the church in America who are behind, who support these demonic ideals and endeavors. Our battle is not as simple as the church against the world. We're kind of used to that kind of thinking. We're sort of used to those odds. We're used to looking at the world in those terms. But as is so often the case, the, the true church has to be able to distinguish itself from the false church. 
True believers who believe what the Bible says have to be able to distinguish themselves from those who also claim the name of Christ and claim to teach the Bible, but who would warp its message, mangling the Bible. As unique as our day is, this is not the first time that Christians have been called to contend for the faith. The tiny epistle of Jude here was written for that purpose, to exhort Christians to contend for the true faith against teachers who would scoff at the concepts of future judgment or the return of Christ. And thus, they would scoff at any need to uh, reflect in our own lives the character of God. Jude reminds us that we need the strength and the help of one another. We need the strength and the help of the church to navigate these treacherous waters. God has given us the church for just such a time as this. Opposition, even from within the church, should not catch us off guard. shouldn't be a surprise to us. The Bible has predicted long ago that it would happen. And Jude will tell us what to do about it. So with that preamble, with that setting of the stage, tying the context of Jude to the context of our modern culture, we look at Jude, verse 17. And he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The first thing we ought to be able to do is recognize the troublemakers. Recognize the troublemakers. And you can tell them, first of all, by their character, by their own personal character. Jude calls them worldly. He calls them natural. This is the opposite of spiritual. It's intended to make a contrast with what is spiritual. I like how the NIV has it. They follow mere natural instincts. They're animal instincts. That's what they act on. What is natural to them. These people are driven by those base instincts, their desires, their own lusts. They follow their own ungodly passions. So you can recognize these troublemakers. You can recognize these scoffers, as he calls them here, these mockers, as some versions have it. You can recognize them, first of all, by their character, the fact that they follow their lusts, their own base desires. And you can see that their character comes from their spiritual condition. It's consistent with their spiritual condition. Paul, speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uses this same word for worldly or natural. He uses it in uh, 2.14, 1 Corinthians 2.14, when he speaks about the natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's making a sharp contrast between this person that he's referring to and the spiritual person. And Jude himself will say they are devoid of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in them. In other words, these scoffers that he's talking about are not Christians because the Spirit of God dwells within every Christian. 
Everyone who is truly redeemed has the Spirit of God within them, but not so these people. He says they are devoid of the Spirit. They're unbelievers. They're spiritually dead. Turn over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter and Jude are closely related epistles. They talk about very similar themes. They even use similar language to do so. And Peter spells out in more detail about these scoffers. Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers are the same scoffers Jude is talking about. It's the same teaching. It's the idea that you don't have to worry about the Lord returning. You don't have to worry about any kind of future judgment. It's just not going to happen. See, look at life and how long life has continued the same way. We've been living on this earth with the the same situation. He's not going to return. Judgment's not going to happen. You can live how you like. You'll never have to give an answer. Aren't you redeemed in Christ? There's no judgment future. It's only past. And so they teach a false teaching that there will be no judgment, that there will be no answer given, that there will be no future return of Christ when we will stand before him. And we will give an account for our lives. We will deal with how we have lived this Christian life. They want to do away with any notion that we in our lives ought to reflect the character of God. They're putting that away. And so Peter and Jude both refer to them as scoffers. They want to follow their ungodly passions since they won't have to give an account, since there will be no judgment, since there is no future time when they will be called on the carpet. As so often happens with false teachers, they teach a doctrine that makes room for their lifestyle preferences. You can almost always identify in a false teacher how he is making room in his doctrine for his preferred lifestyle choices. The sins he wants to follow, you can find them in his doctrine. Their spiritual condition has determined their character, and their character has determined their platform. Well, you'll probably notice that I started with the second thing he said about these people. The first thing he said, which we get to thirdly here, is their effects, their influence. They are divisive. They cause divisions. And some of the older versions will say they separate themselves. There are a couple of reasons I I don't really agree with uh, that particular version. And it is mainly because those who teach false doctrines, those who want to bend what they teach to fit around their lifestyle, they don't want to give up their platform. And if they were to say, what I am teaching is distinct from Christianity, if they were to separate themselves from the church, they'd be on their own. They've lost their power. 
They've lost their influence. They've lost their constituency. That's not usually the way it happens, is it? Usually they will try and say, what I'm teaching you is a better Christianity. What I'm teaching you is a nicer Christianity. This is what was really meant. I know you've never heard it before. I know it's never been taught in 2,000 years of church history, but trust me, this is what is a better and nicer Christianity that allows for this particular thing. They don't usually want to leave the church. They want to stay within it, and they want to gather a following, and they want to strengthen their base, and they want to secure their power within the church. They cause divisions. They do not divide themselves from the church. What they teach causes a problem within the church that causes division within the church. They don't divide themselves from the church. They divide the church itself. Those who recognize what is true and stand against it, there is a division between these false teachers and those. So, for example, when preachers of the health and wealth movement preach their multitude of heresies about God, about Jesus, and about man, they don't do so as a stand against Christianity. which is what it actually is. They instead present themselves as being within Christianity, just a better and fuller version of Christianity that you missed when you read on your own or you missed in the church that you grew up in because they kept it from you. This is better. And when any elected official who claims the name of Christ endorses or supports legislation to murder the unborn in the womb, to pay for others around the world to do the same thing, And when elected officials absurdly argue directly against God's word who made them male and female that a person can somehow choose his own gender, and you and I don't get to say anything about it, we're just supposed to be quiet and foot the bill for that. When our elected officials peddle that filth, we're in trouble as a nation. We're in trouble as a people. And we're in trouble as the church. We have a problem. But... When people within the church who have God's word, who claim to preach it, who claim to hear it preached, they've got God's word in their hands. When so-called Christians and even pastors espouse and argue for these abominations, we absolutely must know how to respond. We must know how to stand against that. We have to know how to draw the line. It's a bad enough problem in our culture. It is our problem, 100%, when it's within Christianity. And we've got to understand how to contend for the faith in that context. And Jude tells us how the church and Christians within it can protect themselves from being drawn into error. First, we have to recognize the troublemakers. Second, we have to keep ourselves in the love of God. The reason this is an important message for us right now is not just to talk about what's going on in culture or to cast dispersion upon people who differ from us in in minor ways or even in major ways. The purpose of this message is to point to the fact that the church needs the church to survive these times, to understand how to move forward in these times, how to understand what is going on in our world, how to understand what is going on in in the Christian world. We have to have each other. We used uh, an example. It's probably been used one million times in in camp and retreat 
uh, settings where you'll be sitting around a, a campfire at night and someone's giving a talk about uh, the importance of uh, the Christian life and some aspect of it. And inevitably, they will take a coal from that, li- that, that lit fire and they'll move it off and set it by itself. Well, we all know what happens to that coal. How long is it before it's just as dark and cold as the ground it's on? It takes no time. Meanwhile, the, the coals that are stacked over here, the coals that are together, the fire, those that have stayed near that are still burning. They're still bright. The church is important. The church is that fire. The church is that place where we continue to be told and taught and remind each other and celebrate what is true. Recognizing in, in distinction what is false. And so the instruction that we have here in verses 20 and 21 is, but you, beloved, in, in, in contrast to these scoffers that you are to recognize, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that means several things. That means keeping our eyes fixed on the love of God keeping our mind focused that direction. But Jesus speaks on this topic in John 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we walk in obedience to him. And the more we keep our eyes fixed on him, the more we focus on him, the more our lives take that shape. And we walk in obedience. And Jude says here, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, how can we do that? He, he spells it out for us in these three different points. First of all, by building up faith. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. By building up faith, you keep yourselves in the love of God. I want to notice, first of all, it says keep ourselves. It's plural. There's a reciprocal action. It's not just me focusing on keeping myself in the love of God. We corporately are keeping ourselves. We're keeping one another. We're keeping ourselves in the love of God. It's something that we do together. It's a corporate action. It's us working with each other. It's a corporate action. We are to build up faith building yourselves up in your most holy faith. I want to notice, first of all, that faith can be used, that word faith can be used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. The first is faith as a grace that we exercise. It's us believing. It's our action of belief. It's faith is that we believe. Well, how can you strengthen that kind of faith, our action of believing? How can we strengthen that? Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what's one way you can strengthen your faith, strengthen your your believing? Hear the word of Christ. Hear it preached. Read it. Be there when it's taught. Discuss it. Teach it to your family. Faith comes by from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the author to the Hebrews says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, that's a lot of stuff. 
How do we do it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we strengthen our faith? How do we build up our believing? How do we strengthen that muscle? By going to God's word repeatedly. It directs us to fix our eyes on Christ and what he has accomplished. We look to him. We trust in him. We're reminded that he, for the joy set before him, that he accomplished that work. We're reminded of what he finished. This is the one of the one of the reasons I love to preach on the finished work of Christ is because as we look to him, as we look to what he has accomplished, our faith is increased, our faith is built up, our faith is strengthened as we fix our eyes on him. When I fix my eyes here, it leads to trouble. When I fix my eyes on Jesus, it leads to strengthening. So is your faith flagging? Go to the Bible and read about what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Go to the Bible and read about what He has done. From His, from his incarnation to His obedience in life, from His death on the cross to His presence right now at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. You want encouragement? Here it is. Jesus has completed the work and he is pleading it before the Father even now, right now. He is interceding on our behalf. Go to the Bible and look to Christ and what he has accomplished and your faith will be built up. That's the first use of faith in the New Testament. It's, it's the exercise. It's the thing that we do. It's our believing. But faith is also used as shorthand for the doctrine that we believe. The truth that we hold to, that's the faith. The Christian faith is not just my believing, but it is the content of what I believe. And this is actually what Jude refers to up in verse 3 when he said, Beloved, although I am, was very eager to write to you about your, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you content, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The content of true teaching about the gospel that is called the faith as well. And there's an aspect in which we need to be strengthened in regard to that one too. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We need to know what we believe. We need to know what the Bible teaches. Fortunately for you, fortunately for me, we discuss that here. We meet on Sunday mornings, we have Sunday school, we talk about what the Bible teaches and we have sermons and we sing about it and we preach about it and we pray about what the Bible teaches us. We meet on Sunday evenings for the same purpose. We have connect groups throughout the week to learn about the faith, to be strengthened in the faith and thereby strengthen ourselves. One way we build up our most holy faith is by studying God's word. And we need each other for that. Like that coal set off by himself, he can burn for a while. But how long is it going to be before that coal takes on the same color, the same temperature as the dirt 
it's sitting on. It doesn't take time at all. One way we keep ourselves in and focused on the love of God is by building up our faith, both, both our believing and the content of what we believe. And secondly, we do so by praying in the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, uh, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. And when he says praying in the Spirit, he's not talking about some kind of ecstatic utterance like praying in tongues or something like that. He's not talking about simply praying loudly. Sometimes I pray loudly. That's not, that doesn't equate to praying in the Spirit. I can raise my voice even when I'm not in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit means praying with a heart that has been molded and shaped and formed by God's Word. As I have gone to God's Word to find out what God desires to find out what God loves, what He stands for, and what He stands against, and then informed by that and motivated by that, I pray. And my prayer is by the Spirit. It is strengthened because it's been shaped by God's Word, which is His communication to us of His will. To pray in the Spirit, to pray by the Spirit, means to pray for the things that God is for. And to pray against the things that God is against. It means to persist in prayer, being confident in God's character even when we seem to get no answer or when we get a no answer. We still trust God because He is trustworthy. Prayer is an expression of faith. And when we do it, it increases our faith as we remind ourselves in action and in word that God is in charge and I'm going to Him because He is in charge. I am trusting in Him because He is Almighty God and I'm not. And I trust Him with His answer because I'm finite and fallen and selfish and He knows what is right and good, ultimately for my good, for the good of His people, and for His own glory. And so the more I pray, the more I come to wish for what God wishes. And I'm kept in the love of God. And so come pray with us. We pray here. We pray on Sunday evenings. We pray at Connect Groups. We have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And we meet in the library and we pray. Pray together for, for you for people who are struggling, for other situations, we meet and pray together. And that helps to keep us in the love of God. And thirdly, we keep ourselves in the love of God by waiting for the Lord's mercy. Waiting for the Lord's mercy. The scoffers were disregarding the coming judgment. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Life's going to continue on just like it's always continued on. You can expect tomorrow to be exactly like yesterday was. There will never come a time when we have to uh, give an account for our lives. Judgment will never come. It will never happen. That was what the scoffers were teaching. That's what they were encouraging other people to believe. And of course, that's a terrible, terrible mistake. And as Christians, we are those who realize there will be a judgment. And furthermore, Christians are those who realize there will be a judgment and I will not come out on the top end of that, on my own merit. 
that my own merit actually is demerit. My own merit is actually a pile of strikes against me. And the judgment I deserve from God is final judgment. It's, it's, it's wrath. That's what I deserve from God. That's what the Christian realizes. The Christian is aware of the coming judgment. He's, he's thought about the coming judgment and the, the reality of it. And, and my own guilt. And what does he say here? He talks about waiting for the mercy of the Lord. Judgment time is coming. But do you know, Christian, judgment has already happened in Jesus. That he came into this life born as one of us, obeyed where we've disobeyed. And that's not a small thing. I say that a lot, but that's not a small thing. God doesn't just require a record free of marks against us. That's forgiveness of sin. Jesus dying on the cross for us is the payment for the penalty of our sin. Well, that's a, that's a removal. Those marks have been taken off of our ledger. Does God just require a blank slate? Does, does a balance of zero please God? No. God requires, and rightly so, He requires righteousness. Not just the absence of sin. And so Jesus comes on the scene and He obeys. He Himself is righteous. So that we who are in Christ receive His record of righteousness applied to our account. So when God looks at our account, He sees not just the removal of sin because of Jesus' death on the cross, which I'm not making light of, That's just the one we think about the most. But the accrual of all righteousness in Christ applied to our account because of what he did. I don't contribute to it. I didn't make it happen. I don't don't sweeten the pot with my own life. He did it. He accomplished that in his life of obedience. And he went to the cross bearing the penalty for your sin and mine. And the wrath of God, the complete wrath of God, in its entirety for us, for our sin, was dumped upon Him, spent upon Christ, such that for those who are in Christ, there is no more wrath left for them. There is only propitiation. There is no wrath left for us. So we have thought about the coming judgment, we're aware that the coming judgment is a real thing. And so we have cast ourselves upon Christ. We have trusted in Him and we have looked to the judgment that was poured out on Him at the cross. We've looked to Him to be our substitute so that we can have our sins forgiven and the positive accrual of His righteousness credited to our account. So where else are you going to go and be reminded to wait for the Lord's mercy? But here, with other Christians, joined together. Because sometimes my faith flags. Sometimes I get down. Sometimes I get overcome by my own sin or the sin in the world or the odds against us or a million things. But when I come here and I'm with you, I'm encouraged by you. I'm directed to look to Christ again. And I come away waiting for the revelation of His mercy. Judgment will come, and at that time, we will celebrate, we who are in Christ, that it has been poured upon Christ, the wrath of God dumped on Him for us. And so, why do we need the church? We need the church for a lot of, the reasons, a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is for our ministry that we have for one another. 
that we protect each other. We provide a place that directs our eyes to Christ, that reminds us of what has been done for us, that tells us what is true, that reminds us of those things. We're, we gain strength when we're here together, when we're gathered together in that pile of coals. And when we're removed and we're placed out by ourselves, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. And so in this world, with these evils that are not just outside the doors of the church, that are not just going on in the pagan world, but many of them are going on within Christianity, we have to be strong. We've got to strengthen one another. We've got to stick together and inform each other and minister to each other in these ways. But Jude's not done. That's not the end. That's not the conclusion. He says we are also to minister to others. Look at verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. First of all, be merciful to doubters. Be merciful to doubters. We're trying to encourage each other's faith. We're trying to be strengthened in our own faith, right? We're trying to encourage each other that way. What if there's a doubter? What if there's someone in our midst who, who, who doubts and wonders? Be merciful to that person. Be merciful to that person who's just unsure. Now, there's a difference between scoffing and doubting. A scoffer really at heart knows what's true and doesn't want it to be true. So they deride that truth and they deride those who believe that truth and they try to make you feel less and they try to make you feel dumb and they try to cast dispersion upon that belief that at heart they really know is true. They cast dispersion on that belief and they cast dispersion on anyone who would be silly enough to believe such a thing. That's scoffing. That's not what's being discussed here. These are genuine doubters. These are those who are uncertain. Their their faith is not as strong as yours. They've got questions. I like to encourage people, particularly new Christians, and, uh, and uh, well, particularly new Christians, but anyone, ask your questions. There is no disloyal question. You're not going to reveal that awful thing about yourself. I'm not sure about such and such. How can it be? You need to raise your hand and ask that question. You don't have to do it here. I actually prefer that you don't do it here. <laughs> There are times and places to do that, maybe after the sermon is over or something like that. But ask the question. If it's your legitimate concern, if it's your legitimate doubt, ask that question. We, uh, with the youth, Stephen does something he calls stump the chump, meaning ask Stephen a question. Ask those hard questions. How can it be that Jesus really didn't sin in his whole life? I mean, are you kidding me? Do you expect me to believe that Jesus actually never sinned? Well, Stephen is happy to answer that question. Any Christian is happy to answer that question. For genuine doubters, we are to show mercy to those who doubt. The genuine doubt versus the scoffers. We need to minister to scoffers as well, but usually the ministry takes a different form. It often takes a form of rebuke or correction, but it is nevertheless a ministry to those scoffers. We are to show mercy to those weak in faith. Secondly, we are to save others from destruction. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
Great imagery. Great imagery by snatching them out of the fire. Now, he's not saying that you accomplish their salvation when he says save others. Of course not. Paul speaks in a similar way in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, I, I, I'm willing to do all kinds of things so that by any means I may save some. Paul's not claiming to be the Savior. Jude isn't saying you get to be a Savior. The point is you're bringing them to salvation. You're presenting the gospel to them. You're preaching Christ to them. You're seeing them become saved by snatching them out of the fire. That's not just an image of the lake of fire to come. That's a, that's a reality. And, and a person who becomes saved, a person who trusts in Christ, is indeed snatched out of that fire. But if you were walking down the street and you saw a house on fire, would you want to rescue those people? Of course you would. Would, would you be willing to go to efforts to rescue people from that fire? Would you be willing to shout? Yes, you'd be willing to shout. Excuse me, what, that's not going to do it. You're standing on the street and, you know, I can't, the gate says no trespassing, so what am I going to do? You know? No, of course, you're going to do what it takes to get the message to those people. Your house is on fire. Bail out. Get out. Get everybody out. Let me help you. You might break a window. You might do all kinds of things. I, I, I don't know. I've never had that happen. But you would be willing to go to great lengths to get the message. Your house is on fire. The church has a couple of ministries. To ourselves in the ways we've talked about. To minister to those in our midst who are, who are doubters or even those we share with who are just wrestling with the faith. They're, <clears throat> they're doubting. We have ministry to those. And we have ministry to some who are facing destruction, whose house is on fire. They need to be rescued from that fire. And folks, we have the means of rescue from that fire. No one else does. No one else has the means of rescue from that fire, but we do. And this needs to be our ministry. This needs to be what we pursue. This is what he is telling us to be about, church. Saving others so that they can be rescued dragged from, snatched out of the fire. There's never been a shortage of lost people, and there's certainly not a shortage of lost people today. And our message is indeed foolishness. It comes across as foolishness. It comes across as a stumbling block to some. And it doesn't matter. Their house is on fire. Their house is on fire. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he calls this the ministry of reconciliation. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. and We implore the world on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have the means of rescue. We have the means to snatch them out of that fire for them to be saved. And so we need to take the gospel to the lost. I'm personally convicted and challenged by this, about me personally. And if it's possible for me to be convicted for us, I'm convicted for us that we need to take the gospel to the lost around us. And then he concludes, thirdly, couple mercy 
with fear. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's a confusing phrase. Show mercy with fear, and there's even hatred involved. Well, we've already seen that there's to be mercy given to those who doubt. There's, there's mercy. Mercy is, is being gentle with them in a time when they need you to be gentle, but they don't deserve it. You're going to be gentle to those who are doubters. We've seen the need to bring the gospel of salvation to the lost. And here we're called to show mercy in yet another way. But it's a mercy with fear. It's a mercy with fear. Christians ought to be the most merciful of people on the planet because we have received mercy. But that mercy is not alone. If we only show mercy, if someone sins against me and people sin against me, and if someone sins against you and people sin against you, when you face that time, you should show mercy. But if you only show mercy... You are coddling that person. You are enabling that person. You are freeing them to continue in that same exact sin. You're enabling them to not just walk all over you. That's not the point. But not learn that what they did was wrong. What they did was sin. We're to be merciful to one another. We're to reconcile with one another. But with fear. By that I mean when someone sins against me. When someone sins against you and they come to you and they recognize that was wrong, that was, that was sin, I, I confess it is sin and I'm sorry I did that. Can you forgive me? Of course we give forgiveness. But we don't pass over. We don't ignore the fact that that really was indeed sin. And we can't continue that way. We can't live that way. That can't be indicative of us. That can't be characteristic of us. We forgive, we seek reconciliation, but a mercy that, that we give must be tied with fear because mercy without fear can turn to unwarranted sympathy for the individual, absolving him of any personal responsibility. Oh, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Well, we should give mercy and we should give forgiveness, but there is responsibility there. There's responsibility that that person bears. However, on the other side, fear without mercy can turn into personal judgment and condemnation. Don't you know what's right? Don't do that to me. Here's what's right. Toe the line. It's easy to talk like that, isn't it? It's real easy to talk like that. But that kind of fear without mercy puts me in the seat of the judge puts me in the seat of execution or I get to I get to give out condemnation we give mercy with fear while hating even the garment stained by the flesh meaning this person sinned against us this person in our midst sinned we are happy to give forgiveness but we must address this issue this sin this person who is committed is accountable for it. We don't give them a pass. We give them forgiveness. We don't give them a pass. We need to address that issue. And that's what church discipline is about. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. That's the purpose of church discipline. We forgive the person. Of course we do. But there's, there's an aspect of addressing their responsibility for what they've done. We retain both simultaneously. Mercy with 
fear. And so these, these are the roles of the church. This is the, the place, the value of the church in our own lives in the day and age in which we live. Because the message all around us is a redefinition of what we value. It's a redefinition of truth. I've said that I did a big uh, study in the last six or nine months, probably nine, nine months, I guess, on Marxism. And one of the fascinating things about Marxism is that it takes words that you already believe to mean one thing and redefines them. Redefines them. That's what, that's what liberalism always does. It redefines words from what we believe so they can use the same word and actually turn it around in a, in a judo move and, and use it against us. It happens very, very often. And so we as the church, this is where we remind each other. This is where we open God's word. And this is where we say, this is what God's word says. And this is what these words mean because God defined them. He's told us what is meant by these things. We have to remind one another of that. This is the place we get that. And if you're a coal, set out by yourself. This is one of the things that's made me a little leery of, of the live streaming. We, we need to provide the live streaming because there are those who can't be out in public. There are those who are sick or those who are, who are vulnerable who, who can't be out in public. And so they need to have access to this. And I, I appreciate that. That's a reality. However, it comes with a danger because it's a whole lot easier to watch this whole thing go on while you're sitting on your couch and your PJs with your coffee than it is to go through all the effort of, you know, showering and shaving, <laughs> getting here on time, right? You know what I mean? So, yes, it's, it's a valuable thing that we offer, and it comes with a temptation. And part of the temptation is for a person to remove themselves from the fire and put themselves out there to cool on their own. We need the church. We need the church. And all of its functions... In all the ways God has put it together, it is essential for us to have the church in our lives. I read a story that maybe many of you are familiar with called The Emperor's New Clothes. And if you're not familiar with that story, I will give you the abbreviated version. I thought it was really like going to be a paragraph. I looked it up. It's not. <laughs> I'll try to condense it, okay? There was this emperor. And he was, he was very vain and he loved his clothes and he, was, he, he, he loved to have different meetings and show up dressed differently. He valued his appearance. He was very vain. He was well known for it. And so one day these two tricksters, two shysters came to town and they said, we know what we'll do. They come to the king, come to the emperor, and they say, look, we are tailors and we make this magical cloth, this magical material that is the most beautiful material in the world, literally. It's the most beautiful material in the world. However, it's got special magical qualities, not just the color, not just the texture, not just the weight. It's, it's, it's as light as air. You, you don't even know you're wearing it. It's as light as air. But it has a magical quality in that fools can't see it. And those who are who, who are not up to their office, those who are not qualified for their office, whatever office they hold in life, their position in society, those who, who are not up to that, they can't see it either. But for everybody else, it's the most beautiful material in the world. It's very expensive, of course. But, you know, oh, emperor, would you like us to make you some? Well, of course. This emperor wants these best clothes ever. And so they start making. They start, 
you know, with the loom and all. They're making, making these garments, right? And they, they said, well, we're going to need this much cloth like this and this much silk and this much gold-threaded cloth and all this very expensive, the materials. And they get them, and, and, and this is what they're using to make this magical cloth, these garments, these new clothes. Well, of course, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're pocketing that stuff. They're putting it in the chests, and they're, they're working at the empty looms, and they're, and they're sweating, and they're working all night and day. And, and they bring in, they bring in a, a minister for the emperor and... and you know, to, to let him give a preview, he comes in and he sees nothing. And he thinks, oh, no, I'm a fool. That's terrible. I, I can't let on that I'm a fool. So, yeah, that's really uh, beautiful. Why don't you tell me, uh, how did you do the... And he, and he starts learning about it, right? So that he could pass on to the emperor that, yeah, I saw the garments. And they're wonderful, right? He saw nothing. Well, the second one is sent and the same thing happens. He shows up and, and he says, well, I know I'm not a fool, but I, I must not be up to my task. I must be uh, uh, above myself in this world because I can't see it either. So he goes through the same process. He comes back and reports to the emperor. Oh, yeah, they're wonderful, fabulous. You, you, you won't even believe how great they are, right? Well, the time comes for the emperor to come and, and put his clothes on. And the emperor walks in. He's, he's been a little nervous all along that what if he can't see the clothes? It's going to reveal that he's... He's either a fraud or he's a fool. So he comes in and he's a little, you know, got some fear and trepidation, walks in, he sees nothing. He's like, oh no, this is terrible. But he acts like these are the greatest, most beautiful clothes in the world. And so the two tailors who are shysters, they say, well, let's put them on you. And uh, so he takes off his clothes and, and they're holding out that, you know, here, you know, here are the pants and all that. They put the clothes on him and he looks in the mirror and he's, I'm naked. It looks to me like I'm naked. But I don't want to admit that I'm a fool or that I'm a fraud. And so, yeah, thank you. I look fabulous. These are great. I really like these clothes. Well, he goes out for parade day. And he's going to be presented to the whole, the whole city. And the whole city knows what's been going on. They've been aware of these fabulous clothes by these tailors who are actually shysters. They've been aware that there are these beautiful clothes and that everyone can, can see these clothes and recognize how fabulous they are, except for those who are fools and frauds. They can't tell. They can't see those clothes. And so he's out there and he's, you know, the procession's going along before the whole town and they're, they're all applauding and, and commenting on how beautiful his garments are. And, whoa, look at that, the color and the pattern. And, oh, it's just so fabulous. And a little kid says, but he's not wearing anything. And of course, his dad, you know, shushes his son because don't say such a foolish thing. But that word catches on. And pretty soon the whole crowd is saying to each other, well, he's really not wearing anything. Folks, you, you and I are the little boy. We're the little boy because the emperor has no clothes on. Reality is being redefined for us. Wrong is being called right. Right is being called wrong. And it's even punishable by law. We're the little boy. And we need to call out. He's not wearing clothes. We need each other. What a bold thing. The little boy didn't say that because he was bold. He said it because he was a little boy. And he was just stating the obvious. But you and I are adults. And we need the encouragement of one another to remind each other, yeah, the emperor really doesn't have any clothes on. There's no beautiful garment there. He's naked. And it's not because we're fools. It's not because we're frauds. It's because he's naked. We have to have the church. We have to have one another to remind each other 
of what is actually true, even when it's unacceptable, even when it makes us look like fools in this world's eyes, even when it makes us look like frauds in this world's eyes. We know what is true, and this is the place we come to study and teach and believe and celebrate and obey what is true. We must have the church. We must have the church. And so at times like these, political and economic and cultural, social and moral and, and everything else, this world that we live in, let's, let's be that little boy. And let's do that together. It's one of the reasons God put us in the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word that speaks truth and, and is plain and evident to us. It's not tricky. It's not some kind of deception like the world would have us believe it is. And then, meanwhile, the world is trying to deceive us and tell us that the emperor is wearing clothes. And they're beautiful. There are no clothes. Your word tells us what is true. This is the place we come together and remind one another of what is true. This is where we open up your word that is truth and we talk about truth, about your son who is the truth. Thank you for the church that you have encouraged me with time and again. I thank you for your church. I thank you for the way you've designed your church with drawing us out of the world and putting us together, forming us into a body with different parts that function in different ways for our own good, for the building us up and carrying the message of reconciliation of the gospel to the world around us. We thank you. And we need you. And you've made it so that we need each other also. And so we thank you that you have provided one another for us. We pray that you would be at work in this day in our church, this local expression, in the church broadly in the United States and in the world. We pray that you'd be at work in our world, that the gospel would go forth and, and people would be saved, would be snatched from the fire of destruction and made your children. Father, we love you and we trust you and we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. I'll remind you that we will be here uh, tonight as well as it, it will be live streamed for the uh, State of the Church meeting. It's a, a, a time of celebration. It, it really is a joy to be together and talk about what the Lord has done. So I encourage you for that. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here who would love to pray with you, love to talk with you and encourage you. And before you head out, these words are the way uh, Jude concludes this book. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.